Welcome back to the Adapted Eye Podcast. I'm your host with the most, Armel Tala. And I'm your host on the low, Ben Smith. This podcast is focused on one thing, finding practical ways to improve your health, wealth, and happiness. As I like to say, you only peak once you stop trying. Thanks for joining us in our journey of lifelong learning. And now it's time for the next episode of the Adapted Eye Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the AOD podcast. You guys, before we even start, let me just get this out the way. If you're listening on if you're listening on audios, leave us a review, like, just do something to help out the podcast there. If you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, comment, and share this with a friend cuz this is going to be another great episode. But we're back. Um if you're watching on YouTube, new setting going to change again in a month and then it'll stay hopefully for a while hopefully yeah no it, it should i don't know why i wouldn't but yeah new setting again also i was looking at the camera before we started and i was like wow the bags under my eyes like i need more sleep i was like this is not good yeah and then speaking of sleep now i sleep next to ben bruh in a different next room so we're moved in now a bit earlier than than we expected but it, everything worked out the way it should have worked out but I don't know. Is there anything else you want to add? Um, I'm going to be on that Ben diet now. It's <laughs> a regular diet. <laughs> ben also has a man bun. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning that, Mel. <laughs> it's a whole lot of things. It's, it's, the world seems different. Many, many changes are happening right now. Yes. Many changes, but a lot of cool things happened this summer. With all that being said, we took a fat break from this book, Grit. Yes. And now we're back talking about interest. What else? interest purpose and hope um it's all about these are like kind of the three things to cultivate grit oh wait i missed one practice as well my bad you can see how long of a break we took from this book but that's just because amel had we both had a lot of classes and uh how long has it been since we recorded like maybe a month or even maybe more. longer honestly more. i think it might have been definitely been a while since i posted a video <laughs> yeah for sure so but with all that being said, though, we're not talking about a game. We're talking about practice, but we're playing the game now. To begin with, how do you follow your passion? Should I follow my passion, Ben? Yeah, we hear this a lot, actually. This is like a really big like, commencement speech thing, you know, like follow your passion, like, you know, do what you love. Like, you know, you hear that too, especially with, I don't know, we listen to a lot of podcasts and I hear that a lot as well. But is this true? And... Duckworth thinks that this is as true as true can be. There's a reason that follow your passion is a cliche. Um, and there was a person named Hester Lacey who did more than 100 interviews on mega successful people. And here's what she had to say. Um, one thing that comes up time and time again is I love what I do. They say things like, I'm so lucky. I get up every morning looking forward to work. I can't wait to get into the studio. I can't wait to get on with the next project. These people are doing things not because they have to or because it's financially lucrative. And so she kind of identified that people who are mega successful do so because it's intrinsically pleasurable to them, right? And this is actually backed up 
um, by scientific studies in terms of you should be doing things that you love for two main reasons that Duckworth mentions. The first is that if you're doing something that interests you, uh, if you're doing a job that interests you, you have enormously more job satisfaction. Um, this was a meta-analysis of over 100 different studies, which basically just means that someone went over 100 different studies and did an analysis of all of them and came to the conclusion that you are much more satisfied with your job if you're interested in it. The second thing is that if you're interested in your job, you have much better performance. And this was a meta-analysis of around 60 studies over the past 60 years. So employees who are uh, interested in their job, they are more helpful to their coworkers and stay at their jobs longer. Uh, students, by the way, are more likely to get higher grades and much less likely to drop out. The point is that science and people, so mega successful people, are in agreement. Follow your passion. Now, you're going to be told, okay, how do I find my passion? You might ask the question said, okay, follow your passion. Well, how do I find this passion? I kind of don't like this idea of find. We're going to talk more about this on a different subject of purpose, but you should really um, foster your passion. I think that's the right term to use there. And then like big misconception is like, oh, you know, people kind of view things like a movie. It's like, you know, my passion is just going to fall into my lap. There's going to be this one moment where I'm just going to fall in love with something I'm doing. <clears throat> but this is the wrong way to look at it. It's not going to be a single moment. It's actually going to happen over a long period of time. You kind of you kind of really stumble into your passion and, and you and you would have. And the thing is, you stumbled a long time ago. But it's not until you finally fall from that stumbling that you realize that it's your passion, right? And so an analogy here is like, think of it like a romantic partner. Um, and this one's this is really good, though. It's like, stop with the unrealistic expectations. And you, you could take this for both, um, <laughs> both <laughs> domains here. Uh, you can't find the perfect partner and you're not going to find like the perfect career path or the perfect career for you to do. Um, perfect simply just doesn't exist. There's going to be something that is close <clears throat> that fits all the right things that you want, but it's not going to be it. So foster your passion. Don't follow it. <clears throat> I'm out here dying. But here's, uh, here's how according to psychology. To begin with, you want discovery. So this is where your passion really starts. This is where the initial tripping happens. You won't find your passion through like introspection and deep thinking as I like to believe. Uh, because as a child, when you're like trying to reflect back on your childhood, you really don't have any experience. Like you could be like, oh, well, I, I like these things, but it was like you didn't even do them that long, um, especially as a child, because you're, you know, bouncing around a whole bunch of different things. So, you, so drawing on those memories isn't going to be like the best for you to rely on when it comes to picking a career, but it is a place to start. The most important thing is going out and experimenting and interacting with the world. Like you have to like experience is the most important thing like it, it's by far what you're actually going to be able to know you can theorize and think okay maybe i'd like this but you need skin in the game and so initial discovery of passion um usually goes unnoticed and this is what i mean by you're going to trip but you don't realize that you tripped on your passion until you've fallen on your face and so it takes a while but once you're experiencing like experimenting all these different things experiencing a lot of know different careers a lot of different hobbies then you finally you'll reflect on everything you've done and then you'll say whoa wait I actually really like that one thing out of everything else then the second is once you've realized this it's development so this is repeated experience to a passion over a long time so you've said okay this is the passion that I want 
now let me just keep doing it. Or this is the thing that interests me, you know, like this is what is really interesting. In order to turn that interest into a passion, you have to do it over and over and over again. It's more about endurance and that spark. And then the last is deepening, right? So like, what's the point of like being passionate about something if you're only surface level? So, and you can do this by involving other people. And the reason why is because people not only can be like a support system, but they also can give you more advice, more, you know, knowledge, more mentorship toward how to get there. And that's what's really important is like you need sometimes some external factors to keep you motivated and also keep you on the right path. A great example here that Duckworth gives is Mark Vitry. Is that how you say it? I, I hope so. <laughs> None of us know how to say anything. Um, but he's an award-winning chef. Look him up because I didn't. Um, <laughs> Mark was interested in music. So he moved to L.A. like everybody always wants to move to L.A. Um, to go to music school. But he worked nights at restaurants. He didn't join a band at night. He joined a band. He would work in the restaurants in the morning and played music at night. And you're probably like, yeah, he definitely dropped the restaurant and went and um, played music, right? Uh, but one day, Mike, uh, Mark was like, I'm actually making money from the restaurant, and I'm actually really starting to like it, right? And so then he had this opportunity to go to Italy, and the rest was history. You're probably wondering, like, wait, so he liked the restaurant? Did he drop it? Yes, he dropped the music. Um, he enjoyed <laughs> So he enjoyed cooking in high school. Like, that's the one part reflecting on his memories worked in a local restaurant. While he was in school and while he was doing the band, he he was also in the rest he was also still in the restaurant. Um but he never thought of like the restaurant be his career, right? He probably was chasing music, but went all the way, went out to LA because he thought that's what it was, right? So he was experiencing these different things. But then it wasn't until he reflected that he said, you know what? Like being in this restaurant, making food is something that he actually enjoyed more than the music. So he finally discovered it and then went to Italy. Now, a couple of things that are really overlooked uh, when we talk about finding and developing your passion is time and space. Um, and so let's first talk about play. Uh, Duckworth says that nobody works doggedly on something they don't find intrinsically interesting. And then she goes on to say, before hard work comes play. And so play is really important for kind of setting the stage uh, for your passions, right? It's really difficult to develop an interest or you know, a really deep interest or a passion for something if you take everything super seriously. How can you ever know if you really want to do something if you don't first play around with it? Just see if you like the field. See if you just enjoy doing random stuff for the sake of doing random stuff, right? And so uh, a guy named Benjamin Bloom, he interviewed 120 world-class performers. And he found across all of them that as beginners, they began their journey playing, right? Um, they weren't solely trying to get better. They truly enjoyed the field. And then later, they developed that interest, that passion. And then later, as we'll talk about, they aligned it with the purpose. But it all started with play. And although it does get more serious as you go on, um, we can't start out serious because you'll never know if you actually like something and you might just put yourself off to something instead of really enjoying whatever it is that you're doing in a certain field. Um, another thing that people need is autonomy. Uh, this is something parents mess up a lot. Um, 
people, specifically kids, need to be able to choose what they want to do for them to think that it is an interest or a passion of theirs, right? So parents that are super overbearing on their children, um, those children often go on to either not, uh, you know, if, let's say your dad is super overbearing, wants you to play basketball because he loved basketball or whatever. Later, even if you're really great at basketball, um, you're likely to stop playing it because it was never what you wanted to do. It was what your dad wanted for you. And even though you're really good at it, it wasn't your interest or your passion. So it's really important that whatever you do, it is your choice to do it. And we just call that autonomy. Can I just say that's that's the dilemma my son will have to face. <laughs> <laughs> um, that exact example might happen because Armel is a basketball head. Um, but the ultimate point here is that you must play with different fields to develop a curious motivation, and this must be your choice. So don't shortcut exploration and play. It's absolutely vital to developing a passion. It's something that all world-class performers have done at one point when they were a beginner. Um, this requires a lot of time and a lot of space, right? I mentioned that at the beginning, but that's the point here is that it will require a lot of resources and energy that you might feel are a waste, but in the end are exactly what allows you to pinpoint what it is you're passionate and interested in. And so we want to talk about my favorite thing, Kaizen. And Oh, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. We forgot, I, I forgot this is like, I have a whole other <laughs> two minutes to go on. You just stopped um, talking. I was like, this is, you kind of early. You just yeah, kind of no, no. stopped the information. Um, I forgot this is my section too. Uh, so when we're talking about, fostering a passion, um, you know, where to start with all these things, there are a few questions that are really helpful. Um, so I'm just going to read a few out. There's five of them. Uh, what do I like to think about? Where does my mind wander? What do I really care about? What matters most to me? How do I enjoy spending my time? And what do I find absolutely unbearable? So it turns out while using your childhood to, you know, thinking back on your childhood cannot be won't be a great way to figure out what you're passionate about. Looking back on your teenage years can be much more helpful because in middle school or so is when you start developing real likes and interests and disinterests and things. And so looking specifically more at high school and college uh, will give you a good idea, you know, where do you spend a lot of your time? Uh, what were those things related to? Are there certain fields that you gravitated towards? Things like that. That'll be super helpful. Um, so for, we kind of talked about Mel talked about three things, discovery, development, and deepening, and I'm going to go over those a little more in depth in terms of how to actually carry them out practically. So for discovery, just discovering your passion, um, begin with the answers you're surest of and build from there. So basically just start with what you like and what you know you hate, right? And I think it's important to say to note that I didn't say start with what you love because you don't know what you love. If you knew you loved it, then it would be a passion, right? So just start with what you like, and eventually it'll become what you love. The second thing is don't be afraid to guess. Uh, finding a passion is inherently a trial and error process, um, and you're going to have to go out, interact, experience the world in that certain field or whatever, and figure out if you actually like doing that thing. There's no way you can intellectualize this or reflect on this unless you've already been doing that thing for a long period of time. Um, you don't need to find the right or the best thing to do. Uh, it's kind of like, again, like finding a partner. There's no best partner. There's no perfect partner. There's no right partner. There's just people or things in this case for your passion that will fit you really well. So just move in a direction that feels good and that'll be a great place. The last thing for discovery is don't be afraid to cut your losses and move on to something else. 
you're absolutely until you're absolutely sure of your passion uh, duckworth says you should work in pencil and this is just because you're never really going to know right you need to be how do i put this you need to be quick to not quick but ready to pivot right because odds are the first few times you choose something it's not going to be right and that's fine but that's part of what i say when you know it feels like you might waste time or resources trying to find your passion and honestly that's maybe true to some extent but it's not a waste once you find it right so that whole process takes a while but you need to go through that process and then uh, on to development um, if you've already found an interest just keep progressing it so continually expose yourself to it ask a lot of questions and keep digging and find people who share your interest also find an encouraging mentor that can be super helpful and then if you've already found an interest and you've been deepening it for a while the last thing is in developing it for a while the last thing is to deepen it and so uh, for this you just want to search for novelty in what you already know this is really the only tip that duckworth provided because most of the time when people fall off the wagon you know four or five years into a passion it's because they're bored and they're looking for something new but you need to find novelty in what you're already doing because i guarantee you there's new things in there you just haven't taken the time to really explore them or really figure out how they compete your curiosity and now let's talk about Kaizen improvement. The more time spent doing something equals the better you are going to be. You're the better you are doing that thing. Now the question becomes is this actually true, right? This is what we typically believe. It's like, you know, practice makes perfect. But <clears throat> there's a specific type of practice that does make perfect. And Ben will elaborate more on this. But something that I like that Duckworth put in the great perspective was some people get 20 years of experience while some people get one year of experience 20 times in a row. That's powerful because it's 20 years of experience or you're doing the same thing every year 20 times. So what does Kaizen mean? Kaizen means continuous improvement and resisting the plateau of, a, of arrested development. I'm going to get that tattooed on me. But mega successful people are never satisfied. It's always, I want every book I do to be better than the last. And it's the opposite of complacent, but in a healthy way, right? It's, and I like the way she put this. Don't look backward with dissatisfaction. Look forward wanting to grow. So in the past, like you may not, like where you're at or what you've done, but that's not something you should be dissatisfied. That's like a stepping stone for you to look forward to say, there's so much more room that I have to grow. But this idea of Kaizen, this idea of this question of like, well, does spending more time on something actually results in me being better at that thing? Uh, that question can only be answered by understanding deliberate practice. And so, yeah, so deliberate practice. Um, this was an idea developed by a guy named Anders Ericsson, who is the world expert on world experts. He's the dude who, if you ever heard the 10,000 hour rule, um, that's where that comes from, um, Eric Anderson. And so he studied Olympic athletes, chess grandmasters, expert radiologists, etc., cetera, um, really in search of things that make them experts. And so the big idea here is that um, while quantity of time matters to become an expert, quality of time matters just as much, 
Okay. And so there are kind of three big things mentioned in the book that Duckworth goes over that Erickson learned in his analysis of, I don't even know how many world-class performers. Um, There's a lot though, at least hundreds, if not maybe a thousand. I don't know. Um, The first is that as you improve, your rate of growth decreases. However, world experts keep their rate of improvement high or at least much higher than the average person. Uh, most people will just stop improving after a couple years. And that's where the idea that Wormel said of like 20 years of, or you get one year of experience 20 times, you know, you're just, you're doing the exact same thing over and over. And that's most people after only a couple years, if not even six months or a year, they've gotten complacent and it's hard to improve, especially as you go deeper into something. And so that improvement just stops. Uh, The second thing is that it takes roughly 10 years or 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. Uh, This for this is definitely uh, just an average. People kind of take this to the extreme and like, I'm going to put 10,000 hours. It's like, I wouldn't focus on the quantity of time that much. Uh, I think, you know, it might vary as much as 30%. I think, you know, there are people who spent 7,000, some people who spent 13,000 before they became an expert. So it's not the quantity per se. It's mostly just to give you a kind of a visceral scale of like how much time and effort you need to put in uh, to actually become an expert. And if you do the math, you know, after, and 10,000 hours doesn't sound like that much, but if you did two hours a day for every day of the year, you're still at like 700-ish hours, you know? So you got a lot of long ways to go, put it that way. Um, the third thing that Erickson discovered is that experts practice differently. And this is what Mel was saying. Experts use deliberate practice. So what what is deliberate practice? Um, so there are three things that make practice deliberate. And throughout this, I'm going to use the example of working out. The first thing that makes deliberate practice deliberate is a clearly defined stretch goal. Okay. Now, most of us think of goals as in like overarching goals, but this needs to be a clear target for, you know, your day in, day out. And this will change, you know, for each workout for our example. So being healthy is not a target goal. Uh, it's actually not even a good goal, but that's a different topic. Um, running a five, running a mile five seconds faster than last week—that is a clear target goal. Okay, that gives you an exact goal for your workout right now. Okay, and that's good because you need some type of motivation or some type of marker to push you forward. Right? If you ever worked out with other people, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but you're at least I like this happens to me. I'm much more motivated. Um, at least to beat the person I'm working out with, right? But when you're working out by yourself, you don't have that motivation as much. And then by measuring and using your past um, achievements, I guess, uh, you can kind of use yourself as the marker for improving, which is honestly a much better marker because if you're constantly improving yourself, that's like the best measurement, right? Um, The second thing, or I guess going on include defined stretch goals, um, you must measure your progress. So keep a diary, in this case, if you're working out, keep a diary of reps and sets or running times or whatever it is to keep measuring um, what it is you're working out towards. Now, the second thing for uh, deliberate practice is you need immediate and informative feedback. So you need to be seeking out feedback as soon as possible. Uh, And honestly, this is going to hurt because most feedback is inherently negative, right? It's good to have positive feedback and that'll be helpful. But for the most part, you can't really improve on what you're already great at, or that's not true. You can't 
use positive feedback to improve nearly as well as you can use negative feedback to improve. I'll put it that way. Um, and this feedback needs to be very relevant, right? So you want feedback that is measuring what it is you want to improve at. So if you want to get stronger, then you don't want to measure, you know, how fast you're running or something like that. You want to measure how much you can lift. Think, you know, that's a very clear example, but it's actually really easy to mess up what you're measuring and you will improve at what you measure at. So it's important to measure the things that you want to improve at. Um, that's something people mess up a lot, including myself. You also want your feedback to be as clear and reliable as possible. So if your feedback is, you know, how variable uh, is the feedback that you're getting? You know, how accurate is the feedback? Uh, sometimes it can be really difficult to get clear, accurate, reliable feedback. Um, and that's okay if that's the best you can do. But you want to be as clear as possible because it's really hard to improve consistently if your measurements are always off, right? Because then you don't know exactly where it is you are compared to where you were last week if every measurement is 10, 20, 50% off from where it could have been, right? That's such a large margin for error that your measurement might not even be useful. Um, so the third thing with deliberate practice is repeat and repeat with reflection and refinement. So once you achieve your stretch goal, um, then you're gonna to want to reflect on what you could have improved on and then keep refining whatever it is you're doing, right? Uh, if you're lifting, you know, was your form perfect? Uh, is your diet healthy? Um, and then find practical ways to improve. Would you have a spotter help you out so you can feel safe and lifting more? Would a different exercise be much more appropriate in this case? Um, and then once you've done your reflection refinement, set a new stretch goal um, that will help you push beyond your current limit. I think from the art of impossible, a good stretch goal is roughly, this is, this is like a general like rule of thumb, but roughly 4% greater than what you can currently do. That's kind of a, a rule. It's definitely a rule of thumb, but it's actually has good scientific research behind it. It works really well for things like working out, much more clear things for other things. You know, I don't know how you measure like 4% better on the piano. I don't, I'm sure you can come up with something, but who knows? I would prefer five. I don't, I don't like that random four number. <laughs> but of course you would. The thing about deliberate practice is that just from everything Ben said, right, it, it's very meticulous. It's extremely laborious. Um, you need a lot of concentration. Like not only are you just going in there to work out, but you're being mindful, right? It's, and, and this is like what actually separates good practice from bad, from just a normal practice is you're actually being mindful about what progress are you making. So this requires a lot of concentration and it can be r really frustrating. It, it truly can be. I was sitting here reflecting, thinking about like, yeah, I definitely need to add some deliberate practice to my shooting workouts. And so this isn't something where you're going to always want to do and it can be an, an unpleasant uh, process. So a question is, is deliberate practice always the best to improve a certain skill? Well, we actually don't. I, I, I don't know if, do you, do you think it is? Um, I think it's the best method that we know of as far as like the very best possible. Um, not sure. <laughs> but with deliberate practice, if you do enough deliberate practice, you can reach this state. It's almost like nirvana. It's like, it's like the pinnacle of performance. Um, man, I already forgot his name. Mahi. Is it? Uh, I think it's 
Mihai, Mihai. Chick sent Mihai. Mihai Chick sent me Hai. Uh, we're gonna call it Mr. S or <laughs> Mr. S. Mr. C. Mr. C created and studied the idea of flow. Now that I said it, you guys can probably research who it is. But flow. You guys have probably heard this before, but flow is a state of complete concentration that leads to feeling leads to a feeling of spontaneity. Uh-huh. Spontaneity. Spontaneity. They just love throwing in words that are just way too big for That's, my vocabulary, man. What you mean? <laughs> it's a state of complete concentration that leads to a feeling of spontaneity. Um, performing at a high it, it, simply put, it's just performing at a high level for something that is challenging and it feels effortless, right? When you're in flow, it's like everything is going, you are just crushing what you're doing and you don't even feel like it's that difficult. But it feels like if you were outside of flow, it would be a struggle for you to just keep going through it. And this is much different than liberal practice because flow, even though they're both working on something that is difficult, something that you're trying to like, it might be something that you're trying to work on that's you know hard, right? Uh, but flow, when you're in that state of flow, everything feels effortless, while deliberate practice is really effortful. And time slows down, everything seems easy, and you're really performing at your absolute best without really even almost realizing it, right? And so Mr. Mr. C, (laughs) the fact that I'm saying S and C, Mr. C argues that the hallmark, that this is the hallmark of experts. Like this is like the, if you can reach flow consistently and do this, like you are an expert at what you're doing. Um, Erickson actually argues that it's deliberate practice. Now, the author of the actual book, Duckworth, she goes, you know what? Both of you guys are correct. Um, and and the way to kind of think about it is like there's a clear uh, relationship between deliberate practice and flow. And deliberate practice is preparation, right? When you're doing, like the name in, implies, practice. When you're doing this type of practice, you're improving a specific skill. Now, flow is performance. Usually when you're in flow, it's like, you're doing what you've been practicing, that difficult thing, but you're doing it in a state where now you need to get something done, or maybe it's like an actual game. We're not talking about practice. We're talking about a game now. So and this is when you feel like you arise to what you've been put. Like when you're in flow, I, I love it. It's like this saying of like, you don't, um, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to your level of preparation. And so like, that's what it is in flow. Like if you've really been doing the right deliberate practice, then that flow state is you falling to that level of preparation, falling to those deliberate practice. And that is everything covering this section of interest. It's what it is. Interest, that was actually passion, just interest, yeah. Interest, passion, and uh, practice. practice. Yeah. There's a bit of passion in there. But now on to our favorite section, the debrief. And you, I'll start us off. I'll start us off. Okay. So this is kind of a long question, but bear with me for a second. So deliberate practice, as we talked about, is very effortful, very intense. Um, and my question is, should I deliberately practice as many things as possible in my life? Or may it be beneficial to focus on a few things to practice deliberately at one time? So um, should I deliberately practice all my workouts, all my schoolwork, podcast, etc., everything in my life at all times? Or is that too much work to realistically endure sustainably? Yeah. I And I feel like if just based on the definition, like without having to know more, even having done it yourself, you can just think like, this is probably an unsustainable thing, right? And it's like, does everything in your life need deliberate practice? And 
I would say like no, and it's like and some things are some things are really hard to measure. And it's also I feel like it also goes with this idea of like you can really only have a few desires at a time. Like something that you really want to get good at, right? And it's like if if there's like that one thing like you're like like this is this is the thing that I really want to get good at. And if you keep adding more and more things that you want to get good at, like you there is trade-offs you have to make, right? And so it's like Okay, you could do deliberate practice and like if you were like some insane person that was just able to like function fully at the top, like able to just take that much like energy consumption of like, okay, I need to make sure I'm keeping track of this and you know, in that frustrating process of like, okay, this this is what it this is what it is to deliberately practice. It's like you're gonna be upset because you're not like you're not always gonna see that growth. And you do that through every single thing in your life, like that just seems like just draining. Yeah. Well, I guess how many things is a good amount? Like, like how many, how many things do you think is like a, you know, like is if I do three things deliberately practiced, is that too many? Is that right amount? Uh, is five too many? What's almost? I almost want to say like, it's, it's really like I feel like in a day, like two is like the, like two things that you want to do, but like. Within like a week or a time frame, it goes back to what I said is like, how many things do you want to actually get good at, right? Because like, you could theoretically say like you deliver practice, like you are deliberately practicing two things every single day, two different things every single day, right? And so that's a total of like 10 different things you're trying to get better at. But you're doing those just once a week. Right? So you suck at it. So yeah, so it's like, <laughs> so you're either, you're just like stretching out how long it's going to take you to get good, but really you're not going to get good because there's just so much gap in between the time that you actually practice that I think like, it's probably just two or three because I feel like it's better to just say, okay, I'm going to crash course and like really hone in on this for like the next three months and then move on to the next thing at a uh, time. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Do you think you should always be deliberately practicing your workouts? Like, should I always use deliberate practice in my workouts? I think for working out, like, 100%. Okay. I think, like, work, like by default, it's just, like... It, it actually is pretty, like, not easy, but it's pretty simple. It's, like, okay, like, what do I need to track for working out? It's, like, just track that. <laughs> yeah, I don't even consider, like... Like, if you're, like, okay, there's a whole bunch of things I want to deliberately practice. And it's, like, and Armel said, you know, this is going to be too energy-consuming, so I need to pick them carefully. Like... I wouldn't even count working out. It's just like, you that's should just fair. do, I feel like you should just do that. Like in that state yeah. of like working out, like, and that's something I'm, I'm also just like, yeah, I know, I know I need to like do that right now. Like I need to definitely be keeping track of things and seeing like, okay, this is, this is what improvement actually looks like. And especially too, cause I know like, what is it, how, how have you felt with the difference of like working out to work out and just like whenever you've worked out deliberately, what is like that difference? Um, when I don't like, if I'm not tracking my progress and I'm not like, oh, I need to hit the next rep from my, from like from my previous workout. It's, I just don't, I just don't improve ever. Like I just stay same place <laughs> like at all. So I, I think it just like, like kind of points to what duck was saying that like to improve, like to, to get rid of that, that flattening of improvement curve, you know, that you get with any type of skill, you really need to be deliberately practicing it all the time if you're trying to improve right i think that's kind of the key point there is like if you're trying to improve and so is this deliberate practice tying it like tying it back to passion like what what is that relationship like it's like 
if you're passionate about something, you should be should you be deliberately practicing? Yeah, I think uh, this is kind of the practice part of your interests. Like you find an interest, um, but for you to be effective in the world at whatever you're interested in, you need to be really good at it, or else. I mean, I guess you could be really shitty at it, but I feel like that would just like that would suck. So, don't do that. And people usually like to do the things they don't suck at. Yeah, and so she she kind of went over all this to just go over like what you need to do. Like once you've kind of played around and found your interest, what you need to do to really be good at it and like develop it and and really become an expert at that. Um, and that's you know deliberate practice. And she goes into flow, but she didn't. It wasn't as useful. Does this deliberate practice? like there's this deliberate practice it's like think of this think of this box right it's this box you put in your interest and up in this box is deliberate practice and then comes out a passion or do you have to input passion to then for this box to work of deliberate practice like because we say deliberate practice is hard right it's like this it's like ah oh, this is just painful you gotta keep track of this and, and and i feel like one of the reasons why people don't keep track of the things they do is because they don't want to realize how much they suck at it. <laughs> That's true. That's a hundred percent true. Like we were like, I suck at this thing. If I just keep doing it and don't realize how much I suck, I'm going to get better. And then I can like, then maybe keep track. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. So but. do I need to be passionate about this to do deliberate practice or can I be just interested in it from, I'm going to answer what I think Duckworth would say or from the book really um what i would say is that you want to find something that you're really interested in and that you think could be your passion right like this is like a really high probability that it's going to be your passion but you prob i don't think you're going to know that you're passionate about something unless you put in this type of work on it right because it's really easy not easy it is much easier to to think i like something or i'm interested in something if you're just playing around with it but you know, once once it's time to really grind at the axe and you're really, you know, you're starting to have to put in hours a day that it's just, it's kind of monotonous. It's like, do you still enjoy it? Is it still something you're passionate about? So I would say like you're putting in an interest into this box of deliberate practice. And, you know, hopefully if you chose it right, it comes out the other end as a passion that you can, you know, keep developing. But sometimes you're going to be like, I don't like this and you'll have to start over again. So... And so that means this deliberate practice is like a filtering process for you to know if you actually are passionate about these things you're interested in. And now when it comes to deliberate practice, you've done it. Let's say you're passionate about this. Like, but for you specifically, have you ever gotten into flow? I've definitely been in flow for sure. Um, and now my following question to that is when does someone know they're in flow? I think it has, for me, a big, a big indicator is a uh, indicator is time. Time seems to just kind of like, like you don't, you, I don't think about time at all. Like it's, I don't even notice it. It's not like I don't know what time it is. I don't, I don't know how long I've been doing something. Like roughly, you know, but like I, I'd be pretty off, honestly. And time usually seems to go like slower. It's like it, I just feel like, like I'm doing something, and I just feel like I know like how to do it. I like, but it's, it's like just the right amount of challenge, but it's like, 
it's like pleasurably challenging. It's like, oh, like how do I do this? And then I figure it out almost immediately. Or depending on what you do, like if you're playing a sport or something, it's like you're you're playing in, you know, the game or whatever and everything just comes to you so naturally. Like time's pretty slow though and like I don't know, all those types of things. It it just feels natural. It feels not necessarily easy, but if it, it, it does feel effortless in a lot of ways. So when you say time slows, like is if like do you look down and you're like, man, I got a lot done and I, I thought it would take a lot longer, or does it just feel slow? I I think the second one, it's more of like like compared to how I usually feel, uh it feels like maybe maybe I could say like I'm moving quicker, but it just feels like it feels like whatever the obstacle is coming like it feels like it's it's like easy for me to like figure out like what to do like it's like it's almost like something's in, like as far as figuring out the problem it's like it feels like it's in slow motion and like all i'm doing is like just kind of mechanically using what i've already like prepared for to like just blaze through it if that makes sense uh, i'm I don't know if I've been in flow yet, but when I I'll get, when I do, I'll get back to y'all. I think you've. Done. I feel like we've all been in flow. I just don't know if we've like recognized it afterwards. You know. Yeah, definitely wasn't in flow Saturday morning. Um, <laughs> just how difficult is it to get into flow? I think that's going to vary on a person to person basis, right? Like I think depending on who you are, what it is you're doing, um, and how. You know, there's a lot of things that can put you into flow. That's going to depend on what it is you're doing and what kind of cues and and other things that allow you to get into flow. So I think it, it's going to vary like a lot. I, I know like, you know, I think if, if someone was like a world expert in something and then they went off and tried something else, I think if that thing was totally different, their ability to get into flow would be completely different for that thing just because they don't have any experience with it. So it's going to be much different getting into flow for those things because it, you know, they don't have as much of a knowledge. Like, what are they going to flow with? Like, they have no preparation for those types of things, right? Yeah. We're going to have to read a book on flow. Definitely. Yeah, that, but that's because that, that's a whole nother episode. Um, yes. So now we want to talk about turning this interest, this passion. You've been deliberately practicing. It's been painful, but you come out and your shooting is good as Steph Curry. <laughs> for Mel, that is a pipe dream. <laughs> I'm now sure. that's for all of us purpose now how do you take the steph curry like shooting and anything you do this is an analogy guys turn this into purpose and then what is hope in all of this but let's start off with purpose ben yes purpose so um like uh, i mentioned earlier a guy named benjamin bloom who studied world-class performers um and from his interviews and his studies of over, I think it was like 120 world-class performers, he found that there's generally three stages. So you've probably picked up on these already, but I just want to go over them very uh, clearly so you know what we're talking about. The first is the early years. That's what he calls it. Um, and this is akin, it's the same thing as finding an interest. The second thing, uh, the second stage is the middle years. This is practicing that interest. So that'd be a lot of deliberate practice, I would think. And in the later years um, is developing the larger purpose in the meaning of that interest. And so just quickly, purpose, as we define it, is the intention to contribute to the well-being of others. Um, now, normally you add a purpose onto an interest. So, you know, as Bloom put it, you start with the early years, find that interest, middle years, 
practice that interest. And then finally, you add the purpose to your blooming interest to make a passion. Um, however, you can actually start with an interest. I mean, you can actually start with a purpose, sorry. And then the interest comes after. Um, so interest and purpose are separate but equally important sources of passion. It is the combination of two that gives you passion. It is not just interest or purpose that gives you passion. They are inherently like mixed together. Um, and a good example of starting out with purpose is a young girl named Alex Scott. She had neuroblastoma um, and began a lemonade stand to raise money for people like her who also had neuroblastoma. Um, but she passed away at the age of eight uh, and she did end up, um, so she started a lemonade stand and her lemonade stand uh, raised $2,000 for people like her and that inspired others to also start lemonade stands as well. And then Alex's family created what's called Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, which now has raised over $100 million for cancer. So um, Alex was not old enough to really get you know, an interest going, but she did have a purpose. Um, and that purpose has made a huge impact on the lives of others, f particularly for cancer research. So that's just a, a practical example of how some people do often start, um, they can start with purpose, but it's just more common to start with interest because that's what comes natural to people. A lot of times um, it's difficult to pinpoint a certain purpose that you're truly passionate about. Um, unless you've experienced something or someone close to you has experienced something similar to Alex's case. Um, but how important is purpose? Uh, Duckworth tries to answer this question by recruiting 16,000 Americans to complete her grit scale, uh, which if you remember from last episode, uh, is just a short questionnaire trying to figure out how gritty someone is. And actually it was pretty accurate in determining, determining the success of cadets at West Point um, making it through the first three months or so of their training, which is usually when most of the cadets drop out. Um, so they answered her grit scale and then also a questionnaire about purpose. Um, so an example from the purpose questionnaire would be like, for me, the good life is the pleasurable life. And she'd have them rate how closely they related to that statement on a scale of one to five. And so after this survey of 16,000 adults, um, this was the conclusion. The first was that grit scores held almost no correlation to pleasure seeking, meaning that people who are more gritty, um, and as Duckworth would, as she's kind of shown throughout the book, if you're gritty, the more successful you are. Um, people who are more gritty have no correlation to pleasure seeking. So people all across the grit scale uh, have roughly the same amount of pleasure seeking, meaning, you know, we all like to go to Whataburger sometime. I'm not sure if you live in Texas, but you should go to Whataburger sometime. <laughs> um, so higher grit scores didn't mean less pleasure and lower grit scores didn't mean more pleasure. Um, the second thing that was interesting was that grit scores were very correlated to purpose. Um, so grittier people, again, generally more successful people, uh, are far more other-centered. They desire to help people. They want to contribute back to society. And this is because we think that people who have a higher purpose, who want to give back to others, they are the ones that end up contributing or being the most successful because not only did they find an interest, they found a purpose and their passion is much stronger because of it. So a purpose can be extremely important. Um, don't just focus on your interest or your purpose for that matter, but try to find both. But just start with one, probably your interest. So this is why we only talked about interest in the first half, because you need purpose 
That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't think about it that way. That like you're you're passionate about something because it's interesting to you and as a, and you as a purpose. But that makes a hundred percent sense. Very interesting. But passion, purpose, calling, whatever you want to, you know, put a title on it. Um, I like this example of brick layers, uh, and and not the not the El Chapo bricks, guys. <laughs> So you have to explain that to me later. <laughs> you don't get the El Chapo bricks, uh-uh. Ben. I could just live in a hole. I'm sorry. No, it, it's just cocaine. Oh, <laughs> I see. That makes I understand now. But um, I'm slow. So the so there's like three brick layers. Three brick layers are asked. What are you doing? The first says, "I am laying bricks." The second says, "I am building a church," and then the third says. I am building the house of God. Now, the first person, they're just looking at it as like, this is just my job, my boy. Like, my job is necessary. I'm laying down these bricks. But in translation to most people, it's my job is necessary. It's a part of life, like eating and sleeping. Now, the second, they're looking at it as a bigger thing, a stepping stone, right? The second person says, I'm building a church. In translation, this means my job is a stepping stone to other jobs. He's like, I'm building the church now, but I might be a pastor in it later. Now, the third, the third, this is calling right here. The third is saying, I'm building the house of God. In translation, my work is one of the most important things in my life. This is already the pastor. He's helping out laying the bricks. And the goal here, you want to be the pastor. You want to be the third. You want to be the third bricklayer. You want this job to to feel like it's a calling. There's something about it that's calling you to a higher purpose. And whether a person has a calling or a job depends on the person, not the job. Let me repeat this. Whether a person has a calling or a job depends on the person, not the job. Preach. So you don't magically find your calling. You're not going to get into some whatever job you think is your dream and you'll develop and like you'll deepen that calling it's kind of all based on your perspective on your perception your job becomes your calling when your perception of your job changes to allow you to see it as a calling right and you can always tie things in to this like this is kind of like the beauty of life is like there is no real like like it's in like life nothing is actually defined like i want to say nothing matters so therefore, you can make anything you want matter, right? And, and an example here is our boy Joe Leader. You just knew he was going to be a leader. Um, Joe was looking for a job out of college, and he was hired uh, to work on trains by chance. Like if I, When I read that, I was like, dude, that sucks. Damn, you're working on trains. Um, he ended up actually being pretty interested in the work. And then he enjoyed, he enjoyed creating designs and drawing like you know the layout of the trains and stuff. I think he was an engineer. Joe's view changed. He was like, yo, wait, when I put down this bolt and I screw this thing in, it's going to last for decades. Like, people are going to be using this. And so he felt like he was contributing to society. Building these trains would last for 30 years, helping people get to where they need to be. And eventually, because he was interested in it, because he saw this purpose, he got promoted. And now he's a senior vice president of the NYC Transit. He found his calling. Now, when finding your calling, you may be conflicted like, do I have to be so selfless, right? Yes, be selfless. But at the same time, you can also be selfish. There's this, it's this, it's this like 
mix of both. Because if you want to really make a difference in the world, you want to be the best that you can be while you while wanting to help others, right? And so you chase your interests. That's you being selfish. But you also chase your purpose as you being selfless. And that's what it is. That's what passion is. It's this combination of you being selfish to want to do this thing, but you being selfless and remembering that this thing you're doing is for a greater good, right? And so in order to actually cultivate this purpose, um, you can reflect. You could do three different things. I'll, I'll, I'll list them out. <laughs> I'll list them out for you. Please, please do. <laughs> They're like, I would hope you would do that. <laughs> um, number one is you can reflect on how the work you're doing. Um, you can reflect on how the work you're already doing can make a positive contribution to society. So you can ask yourself these questions. How does the work, how does my work impact others? How willing, how will learning about X help me contribute to others in the future? Right? So this is, Forcing you to try to take what you have and find the positive, find the calling in it. Second is, you can ask, how, uh, how can you alter, alter your current work to enhance its connection to your core values, right? So sometimes you're doing something, but you don't think about like, okay, well, how does this connect to the core value, right? It's like, what can you do to make your job more meaningful, right? Maybe there isn't something directly, but it, it might just be because you're not doing enough. You're, you're just like doing the bare minimum because you just don't think you like the job, right? Um, or you can ask yourself, how can you help others at work even more than you already are? Because as simple as helping someone else is a beautiful calling. It's something where you can automatically feel like you're adding to society because you are. And last one is like find an inspiration and a purposeful role model. Right. So like look, look at someone else and say, wow, they're doing something that's amazing. Maybe they're doing it in the same position as you. Maybe they're doing it somewhere else. At the same time, like you can still pull from that. Right. It's like who led you to want to help others and who do you admire that gives back to society? So those are things that you can keep in consideration when you're trying to cultivate this purpose. But with purpose, it can lead to hope. Hope. The last part of grit. So we've gone over interest, practice, and purpose. Uh, the last thing is hope, which is the resolve to make tomorrow better than today. I like that definition a lot, actually, because I don't know. I never really thought about what hope meant besides, like, you know, it seems kind of like a wish. It's like, I, I hope, I wish something will be better. But I like the way she put it, resolve to make tomorrow better than today. That's and well, I do want to say, like, like that's true hope. Like, a lot of the hope that people have, like, they're in a situation where there is no need for them to try to make tomorrow better. So they just, when they think of hope, they're just like, I hope this happens, right? But, like, when you think of, when we're talking about hope, like, like hope in, the, in like, we, we read um, A Man's Search for Meaning. Like, hope in a situation when you're in, like, a concentration camp, like, that is that is having real resolve to be like, well, I need to find a way to make tomorrow better than today. Like that is real hope. But go on. Yeah, I like yeah, good good expansion on that. I like that. Um, and so there's an as a a good saying that Duckworth included. It's a Japanese saying, um, but it says fall seven, rise eight, and I like that just because you know I, when I first heard it, I was like fall seven, rise eight. Like why seven and eight? And I I think just because like. 
seven, like if you fall, if you fell seven times, like that's a good number of times, right? And I guess you could say like fall 55, rise 56, and you, you know, you get the point, but I think seven and eight is like enough, you know what I mean? So like, I think that's why I chose seven and eight. Sorry, that was a weird tangent, but I, I thought f- I'd mention I, it. I feel like there's also some other meaning with seven and eight, but I don't know. There's, there's probably, there is. probably is. Who knows? We're not Who deep. Knows? <laughs> um, but let's begin by talking about hope, by talking about hopelessness. And we'll talk about hopelessness by starting off with an experiment with dogs. Although if you like dogs, you're not going to like this experiment. So let's give it a go. Um, In this experiment, dogs are given random electric shocks without warning for five seconds. We are very sorry. Um, Dogs did get hurt in this experiment, so I don't know what to tell you. Um, But there was a difference. Group one, the dogs could push on a panel to stop the shock early. So less hurting of dogs it's good group two though dogs could do nothing about the shock um and so they did this experiment on the dogs they did this this is the first part and then the next day uh the dogs were placed in a different cage with a low wall that was just high enough for the dogs to leap over um and then once that was done once they're in the cage uh high-pitched tones were played that would signal that a shock you know around their collar or whatever um was coming soon now, if the dogs jumped over the wall, no shock was felt or given, I guess. Um, and so the dogs in group one, which were the ones that were able to push on a panel to stop the shock early, nearly all of them jumped the wall and saved themselves from being shocked. Group two, though, which were the dogs that could do nothing about their shock the previous day, um, two-thirds of these dogs just lied down and whimpered. Um, they just gave up. and so. The interesting part about this experiment was that hopeless, hopelessness can be learned. And, and real quick, just to define so hopelessness, hopelessness is suffering you think you can't control. I also really like that. I like the definition as well, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but you can learn hopelessness, right? Um, these dogs, if they didn't have the chance to stop their shock the day before, the next day they were based on this experiment, they had a, a roughly a 66% chance of not even trying to stop the shock the next day. And so um, just, uh, this is some interesting details, uh, associated with hopelessness for humans uh, is depression, sleep problems, changes in appetite and physical activity, as well as poor concentration. So it's, a, it's actually a pretty important study and it was, it's important to realize that we as humans can learn to be hopeless or hopeful. Um, And the fact that we can learn to be hopeless does mean, in my opinion, as well as others, that you can learn to be hopeful as well, which is a good thing. Um, But what makes someone hopeful or hopeless? Uh, Well, hopeless people attribute their failure to permanent causes, right? So if they fail at something, they say, I'm a loser. I screw up everything. And it is what it is. You know, I was born this way and there's nothing I can do to change it. On the other hand, hopeful people attribute their failure to specific temporary causes, okay? So maybe they say, I mismanaged my time, uh, or I worked inefficiently because of distractions. But because they attribute these to very specific causes, these hopeful people go out and they fix these causes, and they come back, grow, you know, they're, they're much better off than they were before. Um, and so uh, these people go on to fix those causes, right? And they, they become better. Um, and so another name for people who are hopeful is optimists. And 
uh, Duckworth points out a few things about optimists that are pretty interesting. I feel like we've heard this like multiple times. I think we talked about this in thinking fast and slow. Mm-hmm. But optimists, this is mostly just like a random fact, random facts about optimists. Uh, they earn higher grades, are less likely to drop out of high school, they stay healthier, and they live longer. There's a whole bunch of other things, I'm sure, but those were just the ones that Duckworth mentioned. Um, but the point there was that you can learn hopelessness and you can learn to be uh, hopeful or be an optimist, and that will be very helpful for you, uh, not just in the short term, but in the long term, and for everyone around you, and your health, and your grades. Just be hopeful. <laughs> be hopeful. Be an optimist. Yeah. We can also, zero to one covered on it, too. But in order to learn to do anything, to be an optimist, to be hopeful, you need to have the right type of mindset, right? I'm, sounds like I'm about to be selling you something. No, I'm not. Just listen to me. Growth mindset. Carl Dweck. Those Carol, words Carol. Were, God damn it. Carol. Carol Dweck. See, that's the thing. Like, why is there like the same name spelled? Like, is it spelled the same? Or am I? Am I is that me? I think you just read it wrong. Carol. So Carol Dweck created and researched growth mindset. Very popular, right? And I love this quote. This, this is, I want this to be ingrained in my tombstone. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Henry Ford. And so a growth mindset test, um, I'm going to say four statements. And you guys just, which one resonates with you the most? One, your intelligence is something very basic about you that you can't change very much. Two, you can learn new things, but you can't really change how intelligent you are. Three, no matter how much intelligence you have, you can always change it quite a bit. Four, you can always substantially change how intelligent you are. Now, anyone could assume the first two statements. That is a fixed mindset. You think that your intelligence is fixed. You can't add more to your, like, you think this intelligence is this fixed thing. The second ones are a growth mindset. You believe you can grow. Name straightforward. But what does it really mean when we're looking at it from a point of view of failing and learning? Well, when you have a fixed mindset, failure is evidence of your, inac- in- inag- I can't say that, inadequacy. Um, you get this idea when you have a fixed mindset that when you fail, it means you aren't good enough. But with a growth mindset, you view failure as lessons to learn from. And this is evidence that you just need to try a bit harder. Now, there's some type of people that you'll meet in life, um, kind of like the, they're the fragile perfect. Someone who knows how to succeed, but not how to fail. And so they've, never, they've always succeeded, and they've attributed this to their talent. When failure arrives, they're like, oh, my God, my talent ran out. And these type of people, it's impossible to tell someone. They might have believed they had a growth mindset, but you don't know you have a growth mindset until you've actually hit adversity. And then it makes you understand where your mindset actually is. But to cultivate a growth mindset, update your beliefs. And so what does that mean? It means you must believe intelligence and talent can be improved upon. If you don't believe that, you, you can't go anywhere. <laughs> like that's, that's just like the simple truth. Um, practice optimistic self-talk. Remind yourself that failure isn't permanent. You can always learn from it. You can always grow. Always got to find the positive. Be an optimist. 
and then ask ask for help. When you're facing adversity, it's okay to ask for help. It doesn't mean you're dumb. It means you're actually smart because why waste all that time being stuck on something when someone could help you out? And that's everything. Yeah, the second section was much shorter. The first, the there was a lot on interest and practice, but Dang. not as much for purpose and hope. Although equally important, I would say. You get to the point. But now, let me start off here in the debrief. What's the di- um? What's the difference between finding your purpose and developing your purpose? It is. You know, it's the difference between saying, like, you're not going to go out into the world and simply run across something that is just absolutely perfect for you, right? Because that just doesn't exist. Um, but you can start with something and keep improving that thing or keep changing it or modifying it and until you find that purpose that is exactly what you want to do, or at least really really close to it and that's the difference between finding and developing i think finding kind of implies that there's no work involved whereas developing kind of shows you that there is a process there's effort a lot of work involved um which is important because if you kind of go along thinking i just need to like go around and search uh for my purpose and it'll just fall on my lap and then boom uh that kind of excuses you from a lot of work um that you should be doing which will hinder you in the long run it's it's so interesting how like that word you know you change from finding to developing that does change it like but how how does this one you touched upon it a bit but if you could elaborate like how does this one word change the way people understand like this pursuit of purpose yeah i mean i think it's i think it really is just as simple as it I think it just excuses people from like on their mind, like their head from a lot of the work that really should be done. I think it's one of those things where um, maybe excuse isn't the right word because if, I guess if you have a bunch of people telling you to go find your purpose, um, it's easy to misunder like misinterpret that. And so maybe like you really do think that you should go find your purpose, but finding and developing, you know, when people say find your purpose, um, a lot of that finding is actually like creating or, or, or furthering or developing um, whatever it is that you're starting from, right? Because you, like we said, there's just nothing just falls in your lap. That's just life. So yeah, that's all I have to say about that pretty much. It's like that binding is like you going around and experiencing things. But like, like we mentioned, you have to finally take one of those things, you know, once you kind of maybe have an idea of what you could be and put in the deliberate practice to actually develop it. it it's so important. I, maybe these commencement speeches need to change the way they phrase things. I think right? so, for sure. Or be more clear. Or maybe people just aren't even listening to the speech because they hear "find your purpose." Like, oh. <laughs> how many times has someone said this already, and they don't listen to the rest? Or maybe they just aren't telling it. But that's all I have. Um, my my question for you: What percentage of people do you think have a calling? Mm, I, my first thought was to say one percent because it's like, ooh, who are the one? It's like one percent of people are are like the successful people in life, right? Um, but I don't think that is an indicator. But and, and it's not just a financial success. I'm I'm referring to when I say one percent, but just like 
they feel like they've they feel successful, right? But I actually think it probably ranges more in like ten to twenty, maybe, probably in the closer to ten. I would yeah, I would say closer to ten, but I I would even say maybe even a little lower. But yeah, I I, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's one, but like, how many have a, like a job and a career? Do you think? So let's say if we let's just go with ten for a calling, like. What about the other split for like who has a career and then how many people have just like a job? Like thirty percent of people you say ten percent of people have a calling, thirty percent of people have a career, and that's sixty percent, the rest, they have a job. It's, it's kinda sad, honestly. Because the thing is like that, that sounds about right in my head. And I think I've yeah, that just sounds right. But why why do you think that is? Like why do you think so many people just have in occupation it's it's like the you know my question it's they think they have to find it they think they have to like jump around to a bunch of different jobs until like they damn i just came across it this is my this is my calling like but when it's you could look at the job you have like maybe the end the thing is like the job you have could just not be it you know and you got to go find that other job but it's like some people just keep either trying to find it over and over bouncing from job to job to job to job never liking anything because they just are already just never going to like it. Um, but some people are like at a job that's like good and they're just like they just can't extract any value from that job because they just look at it so negatively, you know. So it's 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 a it's just it's due to perception. Like everything in life is just perception, in my opinion. Like once you realize that you're like everything is fake. Like yeah, I think Steve Jobs put it perfect. He was like. People that made, like, that decided how the world is today are really no smarter than you. They just decided. And we accept it. And it's like, why do you have to, right? And so I think that's really what it is. What about you? No, I I, I definitely, that quote you said, is I'm still thinking about that. Because I've heard him say it before. I've, I've read about it before. But it's just like, that's, like, so profound as well. It's like, the people who created... I mean, there's definitely some people, you know, who are smarter than us, than the majority population. But for the most part, especially, like, not that long, you know, like, unless you're, like, an astrophysicist or, like, you, like, went to the moon or something. Like, other than that, like, everything you see around you is made by someone who's basically the same as you. <laughs> yeah, like, any businesses, any, like, I don't know, um, laws and stuff like that, like, these people aren't like smarter than you. They just like either like worked a lot harder, had that growth mindset, and so they got to that point. But it's like anyone could have been in that, you know, in those in that same position, right? But there is only exceptions of like if you make like semiconductor, if you come out with E equals MC squared, like that's different. A little, little bit smarter. A little bit smarter. But with that being said, that is the end of grit. You can conclude this book. It was a good book. What's your rating? That's a great question. Um, probably a seven point five out of ten. Yeah, I think that's 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 where it falls. You, yeah. um, I I was thinking like seven, maybe six point five. Six point five. Right I expect I, you probably seven. Maybe ex- yeah. Expected you to be lower, but it's been a while. Maybe we're being a little mean. Or maybe we're being too nice. I don't know. That I being, mean, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say recap. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll recap. This is my take. Hopefully, it doesn't take too long. Um. Let me begin at the beginning. Yes. So we started off with follow your passion and we backed that up with, uh, you know, the fact that pretty much every successful person ever says, do what you love, follow your passion. 
And we also mentioned that science says that you'll do your job better and, you know, uh, you'll be more satisfied with it. Um, we went on to talk about how, you know, you don't find your passion, you foster your passion. So life isn't a movie. Passions are just not going to drop in your lap. You actually have to go out in the world and foster that passion. And that process looks like discovery. So finding your passion, development, practicing that passion, and then deepening, pretty much just adding purpose and, and deepening it and practicing it more. Um, you're going to need to play when you are exploring your passion. So don't forget the fact, like it shouldn't all be work when you're trying to find your passion uh, in the beginning or your interest, really, I should say. Uh, you need to play and give yourself time and space to do so. And you need to make sure it's your choice. Uh, so you have autonomy. That shouldn't be a huge problem for most people. But if you're a parent, um, make sure you give your kids autonomy with what they do. Uh, and we talked about some practical ways to do these things. Um, you can go back and listen to them because we really don't have time to go over them in depth like that. Um, Armel talked about Kaizen, so continuous improvement, right? Uh, we always want to be improving, but the best way to do that uh, for most skills is deliberate practice. And actually a good indicator in my head of whether you're doing deliberate practice properly um, is, well, I guess there's two things I would think about is like, if you're in deliberate practice, is it frustrating? Honestly, it's usually a good indicator in my head, but B, if you're performing and you're in flow, that's a great thing as well. Um, and then... Yes. So that was, we finished, that was the first half talking about uh, interest and practice and the second half um, adding purpose and hope. So purpose is the intention to contribute to the well-being of others. This is really important and I would say is the half, um, about half of your passion. So you need to use purpose and interest to create a passion, not just one or the other. If you're missing either one, you will be lacking behind people who have both, especially if they're in your domain, you are in trouble. Um, and you want to find a calling, so you don't want to find a job uh, or a career. We're searching for some. We're searching for something that is really meaningful and powerful to us, and we do that for a living. Um, so we're not just building, you know, we're not just laying bricks. We are building the house of God, as the parable put it. Um, and then hopelessness and hope. Uh, we can learn hopelessness and hopefulness, um, and so it's important to realize that you can grow and improve. Uh, as Armel put it, um, if you have a growth mindset, then you will, it's impossible to improve if you have a fixed mindset. So a growth mindset will be instrumental in pushing you beyond your boundaries or whatever thought was possible. Um, that was a long recap because our episodes are getting much longer, but I hope it did a good, did a good job. If not, though, you can just go back and rewatch the entire episode again because that's a great thing, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe do it later on. But now it's time for my favorite part of the episode. Quotes from Armelicus Melius. Enthusiasm is common. Endurance is rare. Let that sink in. And the second one, this is a two two part special. <laughs> no. Our potential is one thing. What we do with it. It's quite another. Angela Duckworth on both of those. Thank you guys so much for listening. It's been an amazing episode. Thank you, Angela. Um, Grit was, even though we only we rated it in the sevens, it was a great book. I think if we would have read it a lot earlier in our book reading journey, we probably would have rated higher. Um, and make sure you guys, you know, check out all the stuff we have in the links below. Till next time, peace.